Please open your Bibles to James chapter 4. You'll find the notes this morning's message in the bulletin or on our website if you're viewing remotely. We continue our study of James. James chapter 4. And the, the more I've been working on this section, the less confident I am we'll get through it all in one Sunday. We shall see how far we get. But I'd like to begin by reading James 4, 13 to 7, and then having a word of prayer. <clears throat> James four thirteen to 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, to him it is sin. Lord God, as we study this paragraph, um, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. This is not a text for the person next to me. This is a text for me, for each one of us. Guard us from the arrogance expressed here. Help us to hear your word and put it into practice that we might not know the good thing we should do and fail to do it. Humble us, cause us to depend on you alone and to recognize your sovereign control in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we're going to look at this passage in three points. And I want to begin by talking a little bit about the context within the epistle. The context within the epistle. How does this paragraph relate to the rest of the book? Because James, as you know, did not write chapter 1, verse 1. He wrote a letter. And there is internal logic. And I was surprised at the number of commentators who think this just sort of shows up randomly. It doesn't. So how does this fit within the context of James? Well, the first point here, James returns to the dangers Facing those with wealth, with wealth. Not necessarily the rich. If you look at chapter 5, he blasts the wicked rich. Absolutely eviscerates them. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Here, though, we are dealing with people with some measure of money. Enough that they could travel. Enough that they might have a plan to go somewhere and have the finances to go live in another city for a year. I suggest many of us meet this bar of wealth. You were taking a vacation, had a business trip. I, I think we're in that category. So enough means to be mobile. Enough means to be planning out where you're going to be next year, the year after that. This certainly isn't the poor, those who are praying, give us this day our daily bread. They're not planning on going to such and such a town and 
spending a year there and buying and selling and making profit. This is probably the merchant class or above. But I, I think we're all, or most of us, are all in this net. Don't, don't think of this simply as the uber-rich. It's just, just wealthy enough to travel, just wealthy enough to go someplace else and have a plan to go spend some time in another city. Okay? And James, of course, turn back to chapter 1, began the book speaking to the rich and the poor. Remember, I'm going to give you a sort of an overarching theme of James. James is about faith working itself out in deeds, relying on the wisdom of God. And three spheres is James concerned at looking at. He wants to see us work out our faith, live it out, relying on God's wisdom. And three spheres in which he's going to consider are the tongue, wealth, and how we deal with the world and the poor and the afflicted. You see that at the end of chapter 1. Let me, let me point that out to you. Chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. How do you deal with wealth and those who don't have it? And to keep oneself unstained from the world. We've seen him deal with the tongue extensively. We've seen him deal with worldliness and the wisdom of the world. Now he's returning to the issues of economics. Which if you look back in chapter 1 a little further. You will see him address in verse 9, 10, and 11. Some actual similar, similar imagery here. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. And the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. His flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. James recognizes that different economic positions give different temptations and require different counsel. It's not one size fits all. All the poor in James' day being, we're going to see, mistreated, abused, robbed, defrauded. They need to fight the discouragement and remember their high calling. And those with money need to remember their low calling. You're blank here. They boast in their lowliness and in their transience. That's James's counsel to those with wealth. It's a guard. Work it backwards. You're likely to think you're more than you are because you make more money than the person next to you. You're likely to think you're something. So you should focus on the fact you realize none of your righteous deeds merit any favor before God. Do you realize that you had to be purchased at the cost of the Son of God? It took the sinless Son of God. God, to make it possible for you to stand before the living God and not be destroyed. And he also tells them, remember how weak and temporal and frail you are. You're like a grass that grows, is burned down. So the temptations of the rich are to think they're something and to think they're permanent and they endure. Well, that fits perfectly with this paragraph this morning. They boast They are to boast in their lowliness and in their transience. Conversely, those who trust in their wealth will face God's wrath. 
Those who trust in their wealth will face God's wrath. In chapter 5, we deal with the wicked rich. I'll pause for a second and say, some discuss, is he dealing with the wicked rich here at the end of chapter 4? I don't think so. Now, there are strong reasons to think he does. For one, they're sequential. James didn't write chapter 5, so he just went straight in from verse 17 to 5.1. You'll also notice that verse 13 and verse 15 begin with the same address, come now, unique in the New Testament, only two places. So some argue he's talking to the same audience. Now, I think if we read the text, it's clear he's not. There is hope for the people in 13 to 17. They're they're told to do something. They're told to repent. They're told to do the good they know to do. They're given counsel. In five, it's get ready for wrath. There is no hope for the people in five. One through five. Let's read it. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. There's, there's no hope for these people. Now, as long as God's wrath tarries, by implication, they can repent. They can humble themselves. But the message they get is the message Jonah gave to Nineveh. Nineveh, 30 days and wrath is coming. Buckle up, get ready. Your misery is going to come upon you. It's a different message than what he gives to the wealthy at the end of four. So I, I take this as different audiences. I think the progression of thought might go, if you hear this, look at how this section ends. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. If you won't hear James's exhortation in 13 to 17, then perhaps you will fall under the wrath and judgment of 5, 1 through 6. I think that might be part of the logic as well. I want to pause and discuss something here. Turn, turning your Bibles to Deuteronomy 8. Deuteronomy 8. Strangely enough, God's blessings themselves frequently are the cause of turning us away from following him. The Bible shows this again and again. I was just reading in Deuteronomy and in Hosea and seeing this. And I want to show you. As God gives you more and more material things, the temptation grows greater and greater for your heart to turn from him. That's why these are temptations that particularly come at those with wealth. Deuteronomy 8, verses 11 through the end of the chapter. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God. By not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up 
And you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. Getting wealth isn't evil. It's just a temptation. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. If you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you. So you shall perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Affliction and poverty causes us to rely on God. And, and those people I walk through in suffering, those people I walk through in affliction, they're consciously aware, if the Lord God does not give grace to me today, I am undone and I will fall. The Lord taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And yet I'm assuming most of us here have never had to worry where today's food would come from. And so there's a great danger. You sometimes wonder, why doesn't God bless me with more? Why didn't I get the promotion? Why didn't I get more material blessings? It may be because the Lord is protecting you from being destroyed. He may love you enough to not let you be tempted enough to forsake him. That, that's the logic, which is why James is talking and addressing to not the poor, not those who don't know where their food will come from, but to those with enough finances to travel, to go here, to go there. In Hosea, you, you remember the story of Hosea, Israel's been faithless to the Lord. Listen, listen to this telling passage, Hosea 2, 5 through 8, as he's listing his complaint and why they will be judged. Their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water and my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Then a couple of verses later in verse 8, she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. So the danger is that while we're humbled, while we're relying on God for the manna, while we're calling out for the water from the rock, while we're in desperate straits, we are consciously aware of our need of God's grace and our helplessness. And the second we start to get any sort of wealth and prosperity, the temptation is our hearts is to say, I did that. And then to start shifting into, I did that and I can keep doing that. That's the danger James is addressing. He began in chapter 1. Proverbs 30, verse 8 and 9, gives this wise instruction. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. 
Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So they're blanks. Those, they must boast in their lowliness and transience. Those who trust in their wealth will face God's wrath. That's the temptation, to trust in your things. They will save me. They will provide for me. You think of the rich fool who had a bumper crop and he built a barn silo and he said to himself, soul, take your comfort. You're safe and secure. These are all along the same lines of thinking. Okay. Second connection to the book of James. James continues addressing worldly speech. Don't miss that. He's not addressing those who think, but those who say. And this continues a theme started back in chapter 3 with the tongue to its use when employed with worldly wisdom to create strife. Into chapter 4 with the tongue and its quarreling and fighting and asking for things from God, but doing it unfaithfully. Into last week's message on using the tongue to judge and condemn others, speaking evil. So that's another consistent theme. Here's another example of worldly wisdom expressed through the tongue. And a third connection of thought here, well, your blanks actually, how we speak demonstrates the reality of our faith. James is very concerned with how we speak. The abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus taught. And so we can learn a lot about your true theology and your true values and your true God or gods from what you say. How we speak demonstrates the reality of our faith, and how we speak greatly influences the body. This type of speech is going to model things for others, and others will imitate it. This type of arrogant boasting will spread. And so James is addressing not just those who think this way, but those who speak this way. And a third and final connecting thought is this. We see clearly in the text that those who speak this way do so from pride and arrogance. And the corresponding response would be, humble yourself. Recognize you don't know what you think you know. Well, that certainly can factor back into speaking evil against a brother. Don't be so sure you know what's going on. Don't be so sure you've got it all figured out. Humble yourself. I think that's some of the connecting thoughts. So that's where I see this section sitting in the book of James. Let's begin now looking at his correction, his correction of arrogant and evil speech, verses 13 and 14. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So let's first look. They speak with great confidence. They speak with great confidence. They have high self-esteem and positive self-image. And I want you to notice how, from one angle, harmless what they're saying is. They're not cursing people. They're not blaspheming, overtly. They're not using coarse language. What they want to do isn't inherently sinful. There's nothing sinful about making a plan to go somewhere. There's nothing sinful about going, 
doing business, buying and selling, making profit, none of that is the basis for the rebuke. None of that. In, in my own flesh and wisdom, if I heard someone speak this way, I don't think any alarm bells would likely go off. Uh-oh, evil, wicked speech. And James is absolutely clear. You boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So we need to understand what is evil about this. And it's not what they're planning to do. It's not even that they're making plans. They speak with great confidence. Let's consider what they think they know. First blank, when they think they know the calendar, what the future holds, when, today or tomorrow, where we will go to such and such a town. For how long will they do that? And spend a year there. What will they do when they're there? The what and trade. And why are they doing this? To make profit. So they believe with great confidence that they know the when, the where, the how long, the what, and the why. What's the problem then? Well, first, they are unaware of their own ignorance. You don't know what you don't know. And so James rebukes this in verse 14, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. You don't. In this last year or two, a lot of our plans have been altered, haven't they? Who who has experienced COVID altering your travel plans? Right? That's just one example. Gail Christofferson, her plans, I'm sure what she planned for the fall, has been radically altered from what she would have thought in the spring. We don't know. It doesn't mean you don't make plans, but it means you make plans differently. The wise person plans. That's not the, the issue isn't here just, just live in the moment. It's do not confidently make plans. We don't know the future. They're, own, they're unaware of their own ignorance of the future. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. And they don't, they're unaware of their own being. What is your life? Turn to Luke chapter 12, please. I want you to see that what James is saying is perfectly in keeping with the Lord Jesus Christ and his teaching. Luke chapter 12. I'd like to begin in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. James's readers don't understand what their life consists of. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I 
have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. There I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Jesus is hitting on these same points. Your finitude, the transience. You don't know when you'll be required to stand before God. I don't know. I cannot guarantee I'll be alive at the end of this service. And neither can you. We are his to do with as he sees fit. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, the Lord makes alive, the Lord kills. And the problem with grace is we begin to presume upon it. The problem with grace is we begin to assume it and stop being thankful for it. Until finally we expect it. And when we don't get as much grace as we want, we grumble and complain. You don't know what the future holds. I don't know what the future holds. And when we're in trials and when we're desperate, we're reminded of this. When we're by the hospital bed, when the cancer comes, when the calamity strikes, we're reminded of what's always been true the entire time. In him we live, move, and be, breathe and have our being. Our every breath is a gracious gift from him. We're reminded of that. But wealth and the power it brings deceive us. And so James would have us remember our ignorance. You don't know the future. I don't know the future. I don't know what the rest of this day will hold, let alone tomorrow. And my being is not made up in these possessions. There's a second thing that they're unaware of, they're ignorant of. They're unaware of their insignificance. They're unaware of their insignificance. They, they think they're something. They think they're a big deal. And James has to remind them. Instead, you ought to say, oh, for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You are mist. Their impotence. Mist. There's many things. It's not strong. It's not powerful. It, 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 it blows up against you. It doesn't knock you over. This, in effect, is what James says your life is. It's ready? Watch closely. This is your life. Oh, there it goes. Didn't move my papers. Didn't knock over my books. Other than having a citrus aroma, it has no effect. It's impotent. It's powerless. It's weak. 
is insubstantial. And of course, people with wealth and power, more than anyone else, are tempted to think they are as well. I can get things done. I can make some phone calls. Things can happen. And, and we are a mist. And that's exactly what he reminded the rich of earlier in the book. You're like a grass that grows and appears. The sun comes down. It knocks you down. It knocks you down. Psalm 102, verses 2 and 3, confess this reality. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily when I call, for my days pass away like smoke. My bones burn like a furnace. Job learned this. Remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never again see good. And, and we don't want to believe this. Great and powerful men have built large tombs and sarcophaguses and monuments to themselves, believing they will endure. We, we don't want to believe that we will fade away. Maybe most, but I'll be remembered. How many of the ancient kings of Egypt can you name, despite their massive monuments? We're a mist. And so if you work that backwards, the correction implies the fault. These people, you and I, with prosperity and wealth, are tempted to think we're more than we are. We're more substantial, we're more durable, we're more powerful, we know more than we do. Don't make plans like that. That's what James is saying. This is practical atheism. God is left out of the equation. When, when you and I plan and think and don't factor in there's a living God before whom I stand or fall, we're practical atheists. Simply meaning we're doing what atheists do. We're thinking like an atheist does. And when we do that, no matter what we do, no matter how benign or innocent the thing itself is, our plan making and our purposing is Wicked and boastful. That's, that's the reality. They are unaware of their insignificance. They are unaware of their impotence and their transience. Um, rather than start the third point, turn, turn to Psalm 90. Turn to Psalm 90. I think we'll pick this up here next week. But I have a fair bit more to say, so don't, don't close your Bibles. Psalm 90 is a tremendously helpful psalm that reminds us of these realities. If you would be wise, you'd recognize that your power, your wealth, your money all tempt you to think you're smarter than you are, you know more than you are, you're more powerful than you are, you're more durable than you are, you're more important than you are. And Psalm 90 is a great remedy. Written by Moses, which is significant because it's written when there was no promised land yet. And we're just going to read through it quickly. I have a few more words to say. But in it, God's eternality is contrasted with our finitude. And the psalm will end with, help me to make light in light of that, to plan and to think and to live my life. This is, this is a good prayer for those of us tempted into believing a lie of our power, wisdom, and wealth. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains are brought forth or ever 
you had formed the earth and the world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. We're the, we're the mist. He is the from everlasting to everlasting God. Then here's the contrast. You return man to the dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like the grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. Where where have we heard that before? Of course, James is picking up on this, not the reverse. For we are brought to an end by your anger. And then we're going to see the transience, how fragile man is. The first contrast is God is from eternity to eternity, and we're the grass. Now, he's durable, and we are the easily destroyed ones. For we are brought to an end by your anger, and by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you and our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Pause. You may have heard before that the average lifespan back in the, was 30 or 40, only because of infant mortality. The average lifespan of those who leave childhood disease behind has always been 70s, 80s. Just note, the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So there are the contrasts. You are holy, we're sinful. You are eternal, we're a grass. And... Our sins are before you and we fade away. And then the psalm ends with these requests. I'm going to end our message here this morning suggesting to you that these are good prayers to pray. In light of that, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. See, the planning's not wrong. It's planning in light of a holy, eternal, durable, wise, sovereign God in awareness of your finitude, frailty, and sinfulness. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to your children. And then we get to the plans and the work and the things we're going to do. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord God, we ask that you would humble us. Humble us by your kindness and not by your discipline. We don't want to be practical atheists. We don't want to live as though you were not there. We don't want to boast in our arrogance, but to depend upon you. Lord God, give us a heart of wisdom that we might number our days. Cause us to be mindful of who you are and who we are. And do not let us believe that we are more than we are. Return, O Lord, do good to us.
satisfy us with your steadfast love. We might want nothing else. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, before I dismiss you,